talk a little bit faster today because we're a little behind. I welcome all the other people here from the other class and hope we get all kinds of participation and discussion. Let's summarize in just a sentence or two what we covered last week because I'd like to use it as a starting point for what we're talking about today. We said that you cannot prove in a scientific or rational way the existence of God. On the other hand, it is also therefore not possible to disprove the existence of God in a scientific manner. That the existence of God is something that must be accepted by faith, which is absolutely unprovable and at the same time more certain than scientific proof because science is always looking for more truth. Then we saw a little demonstration at the end of the lesson on how energy can be transformed from one kind into another. How electricity can make light and how it can make heat and sound. And some people have been asking what kind of machine that is. Well, it's not really a miracle like we're going to talk about miracles today. But it's simply a coil of wire through which an electric current passed and produced certain results. And one of the people who worked on this kind of machine years and years ago was a scientist by the name of Tesla. And I was reminded of that. I got a letter from a good friend in Chattanooga who is an engineer with TVA and a member of the Lutheran Church in Chattanooga. And he reminded me that Tesla who did pioneering work in electricity, proposed setting up an electric transmitting tower in Rocky Point, Long Island. Now, his purpose was to send electricity without wires into people's homes. Similar to the way in which you saw the light shining last time without wires. The only difficulty was and it, it definitely works because we do it with radio and television without wires. Why not electric current? The only difficulty was there weren't enough sponsors. How are you going to pay for it? Television and radio is paid by sponsors. Who's going to sponsor the electricity to your house? Also, there was a lot of wasted electricity, of course. Just like in radio and television, the beams go out and they go in all directions and we just use a very tiny fraction of the power that is sent out from each transmitting tower. <coughs> but Tesla had this in mind and he was ready to start building at Rocket Point. And Mr. Lindemann from Chattanooga wrote and told me, it was interesting to note from your letter that you were near the place of Tesla's fiasco on Long Island. And then he goes on, I have often wondered since reading and rereading my biography of, uh, my copy of the biography of Tesla, whether or not his fiascos and failures in later life were attributable to his lack of religious faith. And he goes on to say that Tesla was a bitter and disillusioned person, and if he had faith going for him in Christ, whether he would not have been a friendlier individual and therefore been more effective in selling his ideas to people, and instead of dying a bitter person, he would have been able to accomplish more in this life. Now, I mention this because I said science does not help you to find God in the scientific sense, and on the other 
and also religious faith does not necessarily make a person a better scientist. Yet at the same time, when you think of a man like Tesla, who was a bitter person, it could certainly have made him a better human being, and perhaps a more effective scientist, in addition to his knowledge of electricity. So let's wind up what we said last week in this way. We can do and we are asked by God to do no more for our fellow man than to witness. We cannot convert. We cannot rationalize another person into faith. We plant, we water, God giveth the increase, Paul said. And that's really a comfort, I think. Because when you argue yourself blue in the face with some person that you would very much like to see as a member of the body of Christ, and it doesn't seem to be getting anywhere, let's remember that. God gives the increase. We do the witnessing. And I think this is a very good way to start our discussion today of miracles, because we're going to uh, define them first. What is a miracle? Why do they occur? How do you bring one off? And then, what is the great miracle? Now, in the news a few weeks ago was the story of the canonization of Mother Seton. I'm sure you saw this. Um, in Rome, Mother Seton, the first U.S.-born Catholic saint, and in the articles that appeared about the canonization of Mother Seton, there were uh, definitions of miracles. Because, you see, in order to be a saint in the Catholic definition, it must have been established that four miracles, verifiable miracles, were performed as a response to prayer to this person. And in fact, one of the people involved in this canonization ceremony and in the definition of the miracles attributable to Mother Seton is still living. And by coincidence, he was a Lutheran at the time this healing occurred. And after <coughs> the healing, he was converted to Catholicism. And he was present in Rome when the Pope announced the sainthood of Mother Seton. Another interesting part of that story is that it takes four miracles, but the Pope has the privilege to waive one of them. And so only three had been medically attested to, and then the Pope said, and this has been going for some hundred years, this effort to get her raised to sainthood, that he now waives the fourth one, and she is a saint in the Catholic Church. This is one definition of a miracle, something that Investigators in the church have established as a miraculous event, usually some kind of medical healing that has taken place. Now, if you look in the Bible for a definition of a miracle, you're going to run into difficulty because the Bible does not define what a miracle is. It just tells about them. It just tells that they happened. It tells stories about Many people being fed from just a few loaves and fishes. And it tells about water turning into wine 
and it does not say, you know, why is this a miracle? It is the same thing that we mentioned before about the acceptance that there is a God. It doesn't start out in the Bible and say, now let us establish why there is a God or how you can prove that there is one. It just said in the beginning, God. And so in scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, when Christ began to do miracles, it just says, and this beginning of miracles, Christ did. It's just a matter of fact statement. So we are at something of a loss to define just which of the stories in the Bible are miracles. We have to get a little more specific about the definition. And that's why I asked the people in your text the question, how do you define a miracle? And I'd like to look at some of these together because we have to agree at least as much as possible this morning, and I'd like to get some discussion going on this. When do you call something a miracle? We use the word a lot. We say, oh, it's a miracle that the sun is shining this morning again after all that rain. Well, that's certainly true. In fact, I'll go further than that. It's even a miracle that there is a sun. It's even more of a miracle that we're here as human beings. And even more of a miracle that we're Christians. But people say, well, let's not use that kind of definition, you know. We want something uh, uh, magic. Well, what is that? There are two definitions in here that I like particularly, and you may have some others from reading this chapter for today. On page 82, Heineck, the astronomer. I heard the other day from my daughter in Evanston, or another student who goes to Northwestern and has Dr. Heineck in class, that he has become so popular now as a UFO authority that he charges $500 a lecture if it's in town. <laughs> so I'm happy I've got this page in here before he charged that much. Heineck said, science is powerless to deal with something that isn't repetitive. Galileo would never have gotten the laws of motion if he had rolled the ball down an inclined plane just once. He had to repeat and repeat and make many, many measures. Miracles are not in the field of the potentially publicly knowable. There is no way of testing whether they did or did not occur. The scientist simply says, it is not in my playing field. A miracle is something that you cannot repeat at will. Therefore, you can't study it in the laboratory, is what Heidegger is saying. If you can repeat it, it's not a miracle. And if it only happened once, how can you prove that it happened? So let's use that one part of Heineck's definition. A miracle is not repeatable at will. It may happen again, but it didn't happen because somebody arranged it in a certain way. And that every time he arranged it a certain way, it happened again. 
Now on the next page, 83, from Dr. Yatarud in Oslo, a devout Lutheran, by the way, professor of physics there at the university. In fact, when I went to the University of Oslo and I had an appointment with the chairman of the science department there, when I walked in, they said, when the news got around that you were here to talk about uh, people's religious convictions, we wondered if you would mind if we had a whole committee here. That's the only place that happened, where they said there are so many other professors here who'd like to talk about this, and to save your time, why don't we just get them here all at once? So that was the only interview of the committee, and he was one. And Yatarod said, miracles are very special phenomena that just happen once. They are very difficult to tackle in exact science because we don't have the possibility of repeating the experiment. Now come, now that much is the same as what Heineck said, and I wanted to read it because there is this agreement. There's, a, there's agreement on this. Then he says, it's against the attitude of science to deny this. And what he means by this, it's an unscientific thing to say that miracles cannot happen. And we'll hear from him again a little bit later on a page. Just because you cannot make something happen doesn't mean you have the right to say that it never happens. Yes? I just, I just want to ask a question. Maybe also because our, our knowledge is limited to a certain extent? Of course. Of course. Now, uh, that leaves the idea that what we consider a miracle today may be explainable tomorrow. Now, if our forefathers had looked up uh, those that went to California, say, on covered wagons and saw TWA go over. Uh, that would certainly have been a miracle to them, when we say, well, today, that's, of course, understandable how that can happen. But then we see a UFO come in, and that's a miracle, because you can't make those right-hand turns like that. Well, that's, that's true. Does that mean that eventually we'll be able to do all the miracles, though. I'd like to add a corollary to this. And I'm going to extend this questioning uh, this week. On Tuesday, I leave for the Nobel Conference in Minnesota, and I just got the press kit yesterday. And it now has turned out that this meeting has caught international attention, and that there will be 4,000 people there listening to these 30 Nobel laureates speak. He's the kickoff speaker, that's Dr. Glenn Seaborg, who has manufactured more man-made elements than any other human being. We used to think it was only up to uranium, that anything beyond that is a miracle. Well, he has achieved a half dozen. He'll be one. And then the banquet speaker, I don't know if he's there to see whether miracles take place today, from Washington, the secretary of HEWs. We'll see if he can bring off any miracles. <laughs> I'd like to add this corollary to what a miracle is. And it's kind of uh, my own concoction. I think we have to say, in order to really narrow it down, that a miracle is something only God can do. 
Now, you won't get anywhere with that definition if a person doesn't believe in God. But in order to avoid this dead end, where eventually we'll understand all miracles and can do them ourselves, then I'm still safe with my corollary and say, well, there will always be things that only God can do. For instance, and if it's an unbeliever I'm talking to, get you to believe in God. Because that miracle the unbeliever doesn't seem to be able to bring off. He may be able to make airplanes and understand UFOs. But why doesn't he believe in God and in salvation through Christ? Because only God can do that. Who wants to add something to that? What is a miracle? Is it a trick? I'm going to do another one if we have time at the end here. It's the most popular demonstration in which is brought my son Hans today and he is overjoyed. Would you say that's the one that goes over best in class? <laughs> Besides, I needed him to carry that tank. <laughs> you say your miracle is non-repetitive or it's just non-repetitive at will. At will. Yes. But uh, <clears throat> you have a certain faith or a certain idea in something. Like to me, the miracle of life or birth of a human person. To my way of thinking, I perhaps a million years from now, they'll finally get the solution where we'll be able to create it by now. But to me, this is a repetitive thing that happens every day. Right. And with all the scientific reasons, they find out what makes the hair burn or why it's happening. But to ever get these together and do it in the test tube. I, I absolutely agree. But people will say, we now understand the, the principles <coughs> that govern these things, you see, and therefore we don't like to call them miracles anymore. Now, I forget who is in here. Um, Dr. Wolf Heidegger in Basel, Switzerland, who's a renowned surgeon, and who didn't want to talk to me, by the way, when I first got there. He said, you're going to just put this together in a kind of a poll and come to some conclusion about what all scientists believe. And he said, I'm not like that. I'm an individual. I said, well, that's what I'll write. You're an ah, I'll come in. So he was very anxious that we say each person is different. And when we, write, when we got right down to it after a while, he said, a miracle to him as a surgeon is what occurs after he does all the cutting and sewing up. Then he has to leave and sit down and wait for God. And no matter how many formulas he said you can make up about how fast the wound heals, that doesn't mean I know how the wound heals. It means I still have to sit there and wait, and the miracle occurs. But there are always those who don't like that kind of thing. They say, well, we want something unusual happening, like Herod, when he saw Christ, he to do a trick for us. Want to see something falling up or whatever. That kind of thing. So I, I absolutely agree. This is all a miraculous thing. And without God, it wouldn't occur at all. But the people who say this evolve, all without God, you know, by the pressure of existence and the survival of the fittest and all, you can still come to the same end and say, well, the ones that didn't make it aren't here. Only the ones that did it right 
are still living, and therefore it's not miraculous. It's just if you have enough people to start with, and one percent of them make it, they're the ones that are sitting here talking about miracles. But you do have a repeat, don't you? If you one of the controversial things today is faith healing, yes. where someone is supposed to have the power, and he can do the same thing over and over again, although with different individuals. Uh, and that's past as a miracle. So uh, if it is, then it is something that's called by someone who does, or allegedly does, a faith Well, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I have it, uh, a rather unique story about that in just a moment to see if that is repetitive in the scientific sense, whether people would accept that uh, as a miracle at will. Okay, let's hold that a little bit because I think it comes under how do you bring the miracle off. <clears throat> well, let's talk next about this question of why should there be miracles in the first place. One scientist, Dr. Bourne in here, says that he doesn't believe in miracles because to him a God who does miracles is not as great as a God who does not do miracles. To him, a God who does miracles would be kind of childish. He would rather have a God who sets up the universe according to certain principles and lets it run that way. And for God to interfere every so often to turn water into wine or something, that's more like the kid down the block. Well, that's a very interesting point. Why would God do miracles? Now we can get some help in the Bible. Why didn't Jesus do miracles until that one day at the wedding, when he was 30 years old? Why didn't he when he was young? And there are people who believe, of course, that he did. They're not recorded. It says many things Jesus did that are not in the book. And when he played with other children, he would, uh, he would do miracles. There's even a book called The Infancy of Jesus, which is not in uh, the canon of the Bible. He would make uh, birds out of clay and they would fly away. Now, what would that accomplish? And remember, too, that Jesus did not do miracles uh, on certain occasions where people asked him to, like Herod. Do a miracle for us. So there must have been a reason. And since Jesus is, of course, in the New Testament, the prime example of miracles, and there are many others, Old and New Testament, we should look to him as to why they occur in the first place. Did he do them to prove that he was Christ? Well, if he did, then why did other people do miracles? They weren't Christ. Did he do them to prove that he had the power of God? Um, you know, he did some miracles on the Sabbath, which was in opposition to the laws of the Pharisees and of the church. Were all the miracles that Jesus did acts of compassion? In order to help us through this problem, I put on your table a book that I think is the finest rational discussion. <coughs> By rational, I mean one that uses as much as possible uh, deductive reasoning that I've come across by C.S. Lewis. Uh, 
We don't want to go through this whole thing together this morning, but there are one or two places that I want to mention. Turn to page 139. There are only two on each table, but um, when we get to that, we can share it. And C.S. Lewis, you may be familiar with his book, The Screwtape Letters. How many have read that? Lewis himself, you know, was an atheist at first, and then became a Christian later in life. After the war, after World War I, he saw a great deal of suffering in the war in the trenches. When he came back, he had a, a spiritual awakening, and then became what I still think is the most powerful uh, writer for helping people into faith that I know. And the Screwtape Letters particularly, they're humorous, where uh, the Screwtape Letters are supposedly written by uh, one of the devils in hell to one of his workers on earth, and it's a series of letters of how this worker on earth should go after a Christian to get him to lose his faith. And it's humorous, but it's still very meaningful. In one letter, he even tells them, uh, you are worried that this subject of yours is going to church? Don't worry about it, he said. That may be the best way to get him to fall away. <laughs> Tell him to go and look around and say, hey, what's that guy doing in church? I'm better than he is. And you're on your way. Read the school tape letters. And he did many other wonderful things. And Miracles is another classic. <coughs> On page 139, he classifies the miracles of Christ. And notice that they're not all miracles of healing. He cursed the fig tree at one point, so they shriveled up. He turned water into wine. It wasn't a healing miracle. It may have made people happier, but uh, I don't think it was a, a healing of a disease. Uh, so he classifies them in six different ways here. Who has uh, a thought on this? Why did Jesus do the miracles, or isn't it even possible to come up with a single answer to that? And why did his disciples do miracles? And once they came back and uh, said, uh, Lord, why is it we can't do the miracles? What did you tell them? And I think it was even more than we mean by faith in the Redeemer. I think they were lacking the faith that they could do it. Maybe they were just testing it. And uh, Well, now let's see. We'll try and do this miracle. And if it works, that's great. If it not, well, I told you so. Because that story is certainly in the Bible repeatedly, that if he had enough faith, this would happen. That's, of course, the perfect answer when it doesn't happen, isn't it? You didn't have enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, in this respect, I want to come back to what Cal said a moment ago about faith healing, because a hundred years or so ago, when this science and religion controversy was really boiling at the time of Darwin, a scientist in 1872 proposed a prayer test 
He said, in order to settle this question once and for all, whether there's anything to religion and prayer and miracles, let's go to a hospital and find a number of people with the same disease. This sounds humorous, but it's really happened. It was advertised in the newspaper. We'll put half of them in one room and bring any theologian or Christian, whoever wants to pray, in there and have them pray with those people. And take the other half in another room and there'll be no prayers. And then follow this for three years. Give it plenty of time. And see whether statistically the people in the room where the prayers were going on did better. What do you think of that experiment? The reactions were quite different from what the people expected who put the ad in there. I think it's an unchristian experiment in the first place because uh, it's like when Christ was tempted in the, uh, in the wilderness, the same thing. I mean, you're not supposed to tempt uh, God with uh, uh, this sort of thing. Exactly what the first reactions were, what you just said that the very people who suggest such an experiment are in need of prayer. Well, now, suppose you overcome that obstacle and uh, say, well, I don't care. The, the person who performs it says, I'm not religious. I just want to see for myself. And if it works, then I'll come to faith. How, how are these prayers conducted? What do you mean? Does it actually go into the room with the people? Well, whatever way. Of course, needless to say, it has never occurred. It never happened. Never happened. No one ever did it. The ad was, let's try it. Right. No, there was such a controversy as to the uh, immorality of suggesting this thing that it was never brought off. And some people even wrote in and said, we wonder what would have happened. What would the scientists who suggested this have done if the people in the room where the prayers were going on did much better than the others? What would have come out of that? Is that a way to test miracles? Or is it in their own ballpark? Or is it a way to test faith? Has anything happened in your life that you consider a miracle? Yes. Well, that's a miracle. I mean, it's, to me, I mean, is it a miracle to you? If it's a miracle to you, then it's a miracle. Then it's a miracle. Yeah. <coughs> it's not a miracle to somebody else. That's his problem. <laughs> well, aren't we saying the same thing that we did before? You simply cannot handle items of faith in the same way that you test how many miles a gallon you get out of a car. Another answer that came to this is a long story. This, a, this went on in the magazines in 1872 and 73 for a long time. And another suggestion was proposed, as I think you hinted at, God simply does not perform miracles in an atmosphere of unbelief. I don't know if you remember this display in the World's Fair. Chrysler had a, a thing there for kids 
where there were monsters built out of car parts. I'll never forget this. There were uh, snarling monsters made out of uh, exhaust pipes and all kinds of things. And in front of one of them, there was a sign. And it said, this monster, I forgot what they call it, breathes fire, but only when nobody's looking. <laughs> Now you try and explain to a, a child, or an adult for that matter, how true that statement is. You try to deny that statement to somebody. You say, well, we can uh, put a camera there. And, well, the camera's looking, isn't it? And in fact, it is really very similar to what we're saying in physics today. In the uh, principles of indeterminacy of Heisenberg when he states as a principle of science that it is not possible ever to know two things simultaneously about an electron, its position and its velocity, because the act of looking at it changes it. Now maybe the act of looking at life and miracles determines it. Not just maybe, the Bible says it does. Ye of little faith, how often doesn't Jesus say that? So how do you bring a miracle off? You ask for it. And you ask for it again and again. But not just for tricks. <coughs> when the man was in hell and looked up and didn't want his brothers to come to the same place, wasn't it essentially the same thing that he asked? That someone go up earth and do a trick of some kind that would amaze his brothers and scare them to death, scare the hell out of them. <laughs> but the answer to that, I think, was a very appropriate remark. Even if somebody rose from the dead, it wouldn't do any good. That would certainly be some miracle, because they'd sit there and say, no, that was really some trick. wonder how you do that. And they would not come to faith because it is not the miracle of rising from the dead that creates faith, but God in their hearts. So you ask for it over and over. You mentioned now if people ask six times and three times it occurs, is that repetitive? In a scientific experiment in physics, I'm afraid that I wouldn't give a very good grade on that. Three out of six occurred. It would have to be more like 95 out of 100. But you can't blame scientists for looking for concrete answers. And sometimes they come up with uh, answers to these things. And where would you be without them? And God gave them a question in mind yeah. as he did all of us. Now, uh, what are you trying to say? We should 
not discourage people from questioning even the miracles. Well, for trying to determine what a miracle is. Because yeah. things that look miraculous, used to look miraculous, and you said, have been proven that we found these So maybe God is telling us, here's something I've been doing as a miracle, but maybe you can learn how if you try hard enough. Possibly. Healing. It's not a sharp division. Or at least we don't know where the division is. But God, after all, is supposed to be within us, too. Maybe God has different dividing lines for man, different kinds of history. He wants us to know so much at this time, so much more another time. I've often wondered why we had nuclear power, now it was there for or no in the ark too, but he never used it. Yes? The human being can have that much faith. Please, God, I mean, faith. There, even uh, Peter, you know, when Jesus Christ was walking on the lake, and uh, Peter wanted to walk to heaven, he started thinking. But Jesus said to him, oh, how little faith you have, you know? Uh, what's faith, you know? Because the human being, I mean, it's, it's a little faith or a stronger faith or something like that. That's what I'm thinking about. I mean, well, please, I mean, how much faith is a human being supposed to have to please God? I think if he had enough faith to please God, that would do a miracle. Well, I think the Bible is clear. Uh, that any amount of faith pleases God. Because otherwise, at the end of time, it would be pretty difficult to sort the people out as to who had just enough, wouldn't it? Even a little bit of faith pleases God. But at the same time, I think what you're saying, seemingly a certain amount of faith if we can use that word amount or degree or whatever is required to bring off some miraculous event. I don't think you can necessarily say that if God is pleased, he will bring about the miracle. That if you have a little more faith, he's pleased enough to do this. There is such a thing too, you know, that God in his wisdom decides that this miracle is not what should occur. That if you would do what you're asking, it might in the long run be worse than the way it is now. But otherwise, no human being could have that strong faith to God and Jesus Christ himself, right? Right. Right. Well, that's why no human being can take the walk to the world. Unless Christ does it through him. Yeah. But when does he do that? He never did it. Maybe he doesn't say when. He just keeps telling us, ask for it. Yes, ask for it. But it's according to his will. He wants it to happen. Yes, the question arises, should we always say to God, now if you want to do this, do it. Many things we already know God wants to do. So we'll just tell him, do it, God. You said you would. I think particularly if we pray for someone else, for faith. God, you want everyone to have faith. Now, here is a guy, he needs it. Do it. Well, I know that in many scientific fields, uh, 
a lot of their study depends on statistics, on probability, things like that. In chemistry, you talk about the entropy of systems or a measure of how much randomness exists and how that uh, uh, quantifies stability and things like that. Uh, in environmental or ecological studies, you talk about diversification. The more diversified something is, the more stable it will be. What I'm getting to is, couldn't a scientist or wouldn't a scientist uh, happen to be able to explain miracles just as some chance of occurrence, a probability? Because a miracle is indeed something that you do not expect to happen along your everyday lives. And a scientist might just say, well, this is one of those things that we can't really explain. Some of the randomness of a system that is just natural, and that would be the end of the explanation. So you would expect that every so often one of these occurs, but you cannot predict it. And the difference between a one that has no faith and one that has faith is that the person with faith believes that there is some reason for this randomness, rather than just pure randomness. So it's an understanding, and at least he could make some sense out of this idea that faith is required because of this randomness. Well, it only has to get from here down to here. <laughs> well, uh, faith in itself, you breathe deeply, you know, results in, as you said before, either a personal miracle or a miracle through just constant work and believing deeply inside. You take your penicillin or your sore vaccine. These men had faith, whether it's, and it's a deep faith, whether it's in God or in their work. And to the public, these were miracles. And I believe if you believe deeply enough and work hard enough at it, you create your miracles for God. Yeah, luck is something that happens to the people who work for it. That's right. The ones who are just sitting around aren't there when the luck happens. Yeah. Now, scripture, God never said that uh, man couldn't perform miracles. I mean, the very thing it says in the scriptures about a man having dominion over all things, and man is supposed to subdue the earth and, and whatnot. Uh, in other words, the way I look at it, for instance, uh, uh, God gave me an intellect, supposed to use it. If I'm not using it to my fullest extent, I certainly know this, and I am actually letting God down in this area. You're preventing miracles. You're preventing miracles. That's an interesting approach. You know, we're running out of time, and I hate to uh, end this thing right here. I think we, yeah, we better uh, continue this next week, wherever we leave off today. Uh, I did want to approach the last topic yet indicate what we're talking about here. Whenever you talk about miracles uh, for any length of time, the question that always arises is, what is the hardest miracle or the most unusual miracle that a person could ever imagine? 
and it always ends up with the resurrection. That someone, somebody who has died should live again. And it isn't, isn't it ultimately that all the miracles that are in scripture and any others that are through faith point to this? Because if that miracle did not occur, it would be kind of a dead-end street as far as Christianity is concerned. And in this connection, the same Dr. Yotarud has another remarkable statement in here on uh, page 102. And it's similar to what you just said about randomness and statistics. He got involved in that as far as resurrection is concerned. He said, if you put a card in a box for each man who died and one in another box for each man who was resurrected, you would have one card in one box and millions and millions in the other. Now, he's not quite right there because there were other people who have risen from the dead, Lazarus and others. But at least let's get the idea that we'd have just a few cards in one box, millions in another, but I would not take the one card out. This is a question of honesty, as you said. You have to consider it, that it was reported. And just because you can't do it, doesn't mean that the evidence has to be thrown out. And since it was reported by a number of witnesses, we'd better consider it from a scientific point of view, he said, as possibly valid. And the people are not honest who say that, no, that was just <coughs> in the old days when they didn't report things so carefully that it didn't occur. I find that it is, it is much easier today to talk to scientists about the resurrection than it was a number of years ago because, especially, again, in the ultimate nature of matter, in physics and chemistry, where you get down to the point where you really no longer are talking about anything real. The electron eventually doesn't seem to be even a, a real particle at all. It's just a, a wave motion. Now, everything that we see is composed of things that are not essentially material particles. Why should anyone honestly say that there is no such thing as another kind of life and another rearrangement and a new way of living? So, from that approach alone, people are more concerned about talking about spiritual values today than they were before. And also because we're not solving all the world's problems, too. There must be more. And if there can't be more, then there can't be God. And if there can't be God, then there can't be anything he wants to do. Or he is not God. And then he can certainly, if you make this whole thing in the first place, remake it. Well, that's a rational approach, you see starts here, but maybe at least if you get into here, it'll filter down. Because if it is not eventually and finally, in the final result, a personal conviction and a trust, then it doesn't do any good. I was shocked when I read in a paper not long ago, and in fact, it's an interesting um, thing that it would happen this week. At this same Nobel conference, this isn't the first one, there were others. At one of these previous Nobel conferences, they invited some theologians, like they're doing to this one, to react to what the scientists were saying. 
And a few years ago, they invited the head of the Divinity School of Harvard University to react. And he gets up and makes the remarkable statement that it is time that the Christian church got rid of the arrogant concept that there is life after death. Theologian said he once believed in an afterlife, but he no longer does. He thinks that this is hurting man, it's keeping us from solving problems in this world. That's not what they expected to hear. They expected maybe some of the other people at the conference to say this and the theologian to come in with some Christian concepts. And he gives a speech about how he's lost his faith. Again, to me, a, a proof that it, it's not just a matter of putting two and two together. It has to be a, a personal experience. So we better get to this thing here. Now, this, to some people, this is a miracle that you're going to hear. <coughs> a miracle that it works, first of all. Thomas, you hold it. We're going to take a balloon. And I use, I use this demonstration to show that men and people generally are not really in control of their own destinies as much as they would like to think. We like to think that everything we have and are is pretty much our own effort. I'm filling this with helium. Maybe you've heard this before. And I'm going to fill my lungs with it and then talk to you again. And I'm going to try as hard as I can after my lungs are full of helium to talk just the way I'm doing now. And you see what happens. This is how it sounds when my lungs are full of helium. It doesn't sound at all like I did before. <laughs> There was absolutely no way in which I could have talked any different. Now they're talking about putting helium into spaceships. Can you imagine this on TV? <laughs> After you spend billions, the guy gets up there and sounds like Donald Duck. <laughs> but you see, the reason it sounded that way is because helium is lighter. The molecules move faster. And so as the vocal cords vibrated, the sound came out in a higher pitch. So we're not as much our old masters. I'm sorry we ran over a little bit. I just got the signal. 